The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors, or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. your personal digital assistant and listen up it's time for another stellar episode of dotnet rocks the internet audio talk show for dotnet developers with carl franklin and richard campbell this is jeff maciolik here to announce show number 122 with guest russ nemhauser recorded live wednesday july 13 2005 Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASP.NET classes remotely, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASP.NET development, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man with just enough bandwidth to satisfy 50 million curious iTunes users, Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you, Mr. Acavano, and welcome to another stellar edition of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here once again on the east coast of the United States of America. Out there in Canada land, fantasy land, is Richard Campbell, my co-host. How are you, Richard? I'm fine, man. We call it social land. <laughs> social. The land where any two people who want to get married can get married. Yeah, that's good. I'm all for that, by the way. The land where your city hall can't take your house away to put up a mall. You're really not going to let that go. Like, it's my fault, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, I voted against it. All right. So, what's new with you, man? Well, actually, I've been working from home and working like crazy. The wife's out of town for the week, and uh, the girls are all off doing their thing, so it's just been a wor- nonstop working time. And uh, feeling good about it. You know, actually knocking through some tough stuff. We've got a new team coming together, a bunch of new hires, and uh, we're slugging away. Cool. So did you do anything fun while the wife was away? I haven't yet, no. Except, well, I made a good poivre sauce, but, you know, that makes me happy. I don't think anybody else cares. Hey, that's pretty cool. That's <laughs> pretty cool. I'm all about the poivre sauce. You bet. <laughs> I take my green peppercorn seriously. I, on the other hand, have had a very, very exciting week, and my wife is not away. I'm teaching a class of 10 people, and I have two remotes. I have one remote in New York and one in New Zealand, who's actually calling our uh, our conference with Skype. Cool. So this is like, t- this is like nerd week here. 
at Franklin's Net. We're like all hooked up. And I dropped in on your class the other day too. Yeah, that's right. So what we've done is we're recording videos at the same time. So a class video. So we have microphones like at every station in the training room. Everybody's got a microphone. Uh, they can all hear the people remotely. Every The remote people can hear them. We're recording the whole thing, and I've got a microphone as uh, Camtasia videos, you know, all through mixers and stuff with the phone patched in. And on top of all that, you know, we've got uh, – we're recording a video. So lots of fun. Geek Week. And on top of that, uh, the class, the, the people in the class – Excellent. Excellent crowd. I really, really love when people are asking questions, they get engaged, you know, they, they're curious about stuff. Uh, and I've even learned a couple of things from the class this week. They've really been engaged, which is always the best thing for a teacher, you know, when the class is really excited. Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing worse than teaching a bunch of rocks, you know? They could send me to class, but they can't make me think. <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know as if that, but, you know, they, they just have questions and issues that they've come with and we're discussing them. So I'm having a great time this week. All right. Enough of that. We've got some, uh, as you know, we're in the middle of our .NET Rocks flame war. And it isn't really a flame war. It's just that uh, we've, at, on one show, I think it was 116, we, uh, uh, you know, I just made a comment that, you know, Richard, we get a lot of great emails from people who really love the show, but we don't really get any flames. So I made the mistake of asking for flames. You know, go ahead. We're, if you're bored, write us, a, write us a flame, you know, tell us how we suck and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, at first they came in in dribs. They didn't really know that we could take it or something. They were, you know what I mean? They were sort of like polite. <laughs> yeah. They, I, I like the uh, flames where they say, if that's too harsh, uh, let me know and I'll edit it. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I take an extra large. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but But now we're getting some really good ones. And here's one from John Stevenson. He wrote, what the hell are you guys thinking pushing this Microsoft crap? Bill is the devil, and anything he has spit forth from his evil empire is the death of any real creativity. Long live Cobalt. Cobalt, not Cobalt. Cobalt. C-O-B-A-L-T. Long live Cobalt, in all caps. The one true language. You and your Microsoft lackeys can go burn in the fiery bells of the earth. It's not bad. All right. Not Pointless, bad. you know, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to make sense. That's Didn't call okay. anybody a Nazi, though. No, no, like, not like I mean, last how week. How can you have a flame without a Nazi? <laughs> Chris Ear, Airy, Ayer, E-Y-R-E. Sorry, Chris. Don't know how to pronounce your name. But he says, Carl and Richard, while I'm an avid listener to DNR, the recent evangelism show was so bad that I decided to send in the Martians. And he gives us a link, shrinkster.com slash 6M, as in Mary D, 6MD. Just go ahead and go to that site. Shrinkster.com slash 6MD. <laughs> I don't know if we should describe it or we should just let the listeners go to it and leave it at that. Uh, I listened I, oh, I, I've seen this before. Have you? Yeah, this is where uh, okay, the Martians well, anyway. attack. The Martians attack DNR. I listened to the show for the humor and technical content. This episode was almost empty of both. Otherwise, keep up the good work. Hey, Chris, that, that hurts, man. <laughs> the Nazis are okay, but that hurts. <laughs> Here's one from uh, Wayne Thume, T-H-U-M-E. Thume, Thume, not sure. Uh, here's a hint. If you're writing us an email, send us a phonetic uh, pronunciation of your last name. 
or your first name for that matter, unless it's Wayne. Carl, when I first heard .NET Rocks, it was wonderful to find a show that didn't bash VB programmers. In fact, you went beyond that and actually praised us for choosing a language that is easier to work with and has more Microsoft support. You don't know how many articles and people I've had to endure as they ramble on about how great C-sharp is and how you're not a good programmer if you don't use it. And then he's got a little bracket, flame on. Then one week you read a letter from a C-sharp program who criticized you for singing the praises of VB. You could sing the praises of VB for years and not come close to all the abuse VB has, heaped on, has had heaped on it. So spineless jellyfish that you are, you've made sure ever since then not to be too effusive about VB, lest one of the big bad C-sharp programmers writes another mean letter to you. So get off your politically correct ass and get back in there and fight. Flame off. Love the show, Wayne Thume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, point taken. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, I'm just a I'm just an, a level-headed kind of guy and I'm not an extremist. So, you know, even though I firmly believe in my heart of hearts that VB is a great language, I'm not I don't plan on pushing it on anybody. You know, you don't you don't fight fascism with fascism. It just doesn't work that way. You can't right? lead a programmer to water. Right. And it's not like you're going to convert anybody. All we want to do is feel good about our language, right? You other guys, just leave us alone and let us write in VB. That's all I got to say. And I think I've said it too many times. Now I'm going to get flamed for that, right? <laughs> all right. I don't know. I'm not emotionally bound to any language. I've given up caring about languages. It's whatever I'm programming in this week. Right, exactly. I've done my fair share of both. So anyway. Oh, hey, dude, watch out for that dog in the road. All right, here we go. You ready? Pay attention now. So I'm going to uh, introduce the guest here, I suppose, because nobody wants to hear us go on and on about our stupid flames and our stupid VB war. Uh, Russ Nemhauser is a Microsoft ASP.NET MVP and a Microsoft certified professional and has served as an architect, developer, team leader, and project manager over the past several years. His recent projects include enterprise applications, online commerce sites, and corporate intranets for Wall Street, Universal Studios, Microsoft, Seagram, and others. Russ speaks at several industry conferences each year and writes for several magazines and online software community sites. Welcome, Russ. Thank you very much. How are you guys doing tonight? Just ducky. Here we are. Ducky, quack, quack. <laughs> Where are you located right now? I'm in Los Angeles, California. And is this your natural domicile? It, it is right now. We're not sure how much longer we want to stay in Los Angeles, but for now, it's it's where we live. It's often been referred to as the land of fruits and nuts, right? It's a beautiful place. That would, uh, you know, a lot of the listeners probably live in L.A. and would take offense to that, but uh, <laughs> I would say there's some truth to that. Well, you know, you can find craziness anywhere, right? You find yeah, craziness exactly. on the East Coast in New York City. Oh, man. Who else should we offend tonight, Richard? I don't know. You're rolling. <laughs> Have you gone after the Quebecois yet? You want to spit out some French insults? You, you, could, know? you could find weirdness in New London, Connecticut, man. You oh, come you over, always find weirdness in New London, Connecticut. I will show you weird like you've never seen weird over here, as a matter of fact. <laughs> 
So what, during the during the intro there, I heard you say uh, the word "flame on." So of course, my first thought was to that new movie, Fantastic Four, that just came out. Ah, uh, yeah, filmed in Vancouver, I might add. Really? Did you guys see that yet? I haven't no. yet. Okay, it, you probably don't need to. No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew some folks that were working on the set, and every time I saw them, they go, "Boy, are we making a bad movie?" Really? <laughs> <laughs> the crew always knows. Yeah, I'll bet they do. I'll bet they do. They always know. So you've uh, we, we originally set up this interview to talk a little bit about smartphones and uh, how the compact framework works with it a bit. You've been doing some work in that area. I've been doing some work, and I, I do. There's a talk that I do uh, where I kind of introduce uh, the tools and technologies to people, okay. and I create a few sample applications in that talk. One of which is. Um, Way back in, in the day, this being like six years ago now, um, I, I just basically al- allowed myself to, to enter into just a horrible uh, car lease deal. And so I swore that the next lease that I got, I was not going to, to be on the receiving end of a bad thing. So one of the things that I did, and back then I had a, a pocket PC when they were when they were still big and bulky. I mean, I, I can't believe how how thin and light and small they're getting. But yeah. um, using the compact framework, which by then you know it, it had only been out for for a, a little while, um, and using the compact framework, I was able to apply what I already knew about VB.net programming, what I already knew about Windows Forms programming and bang out this application that would compute my lease payment based on a popular formula in like 10 minutes. And, and once I saw that, that it was possible to do this, that, that I didn't need to learn embedded C++ or any of that fancy low-level stuff, I could use what I already knew and then just work with it on this whole other platform, I was, I was totally hooked. So, bas- so basically, this is uh, you take it to the dealer to when somebody gives you a price and and the terms, you plug it in, and it figures out what your base what your payment's going to be, right? That's exactly right. Exactly right. There's five variables. There's the the money factor, which in lease terms is a is a fancy way of saying interest rate. And there's yeah. things like the agreed upon price and what the residual is going to be and the term and the sales tax. And yeah. you you want to fight hard for every single one. Well, I guess sales tax, you don't really have much say over. Right. But, um, that's four areas right there that you can fight hard for. So, you know, if, if somebody, one of the first things the salesman will always say to you is, how much do you want to spend every month? Yeah, I, yeah. I know. And that's a trap that everybody falls into. Right. So. Yeah, but you know the, you know the four square technique? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so each, each one of those four squares is, is is a square in which they can put it to you. That's right. So if you if you bring in a piece of paper and you write down those numbers in the in the square, you look them in the eye. You say, you know, they know <laughs> that you yep. know what's going on. Yep, exactly. Bring the blue book, you know, all that. Back in the eighties, I wrote a program uh, for lease calculations that was one of the sneakiest pieces of software I've ever written. Every time you put a number in, it held on to it. You you could never get back to the original calculation. Every it would every time it would add, raise a value. The next time you recomputed it, if one of the values would have been smaller, it would keep the larger one. Hmm. the The sales guys loved it because the more the guy futz with the lease, the more they made. 
Interesting. <laughs> like to put your two programs head to head and see who It was a very wins. evil piece of software. I was quite proud of it at the time. Yeah, I'll bet. So what kind of uh, device are you using these days? Right now, I have the AudioVox SMT5600, which is a great little device. I mean, it just has a couple of dumb little quirks that, that you get used to. For example, um, the power button doesn't actually power the phone off. It just kind of shows you a bunch of splash screens. Mm. Um, but once you start jiggling the joystick, you'll see the screen light right back up again. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing. To turn it off, you actually have to remove the battery and then put it back in. Nice. Wow. But I'll tell you, uh, I had had Nokia phones for a while, and, and I loved the operating system. And I'm, go- I'm talking old school here. I'm talking about, you know, like when Nokia first really became popular, there was a black phone, and I forget what the model number was, but the, they had the operating system just down. Yeah. And then from there, I moved on to a Sony Ericsson, which I hated. Um, and I think a lot of people were in the same boat. They, they really liked the features. And then as they used the phone more and more, they grew to dislike it more and more. <laughs> After Sony Ericsson, I moved over to the Verizon network and um, I got the, was it the LG? Uh, whatever the, the most popular right, one has yeah. been up until about like six months ago. Right, like a little cool phone, a little flip phone, flip phone yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah, and shell type design. I had one and of those I, too. I went that route because I was just so tired of going to all of these conferences, TechEd, you know, this conference, that conference, and seeing all these smartphones that everybody, you know, all the vendors have, and they're demoing, and nobody would ever release one. Yeah. So I went to Verizon, and sure enough, six months after I go to Verizon and sign a, a two-year contract, AT&T Wireless finally comes out with this SMT5600 by AudioVox. So I ended up, yeah, I busted my contract with Verizon because I've been waiting so long. And I'll tell you, it, not only was it worth the wait, but it was worth busting the contract and, and paying the fee because uh, I, I can't see myself ever going back to uh just a normal phone again. I mean, I've got my contacts, you know, I've got my emails and a web browser. It's great. So what what's the difference between that and like, uh, you know, I have a Verizon uh, hooked up Samsung pocket PC phone, you know, and right. uh, and I use their uh, CDMA network on mine. Right. It's a uh, SPHI 700. You familiar with that? Right. Um, I think so, yeah. So, like, what, what's the difference between, I mean, because for me, I mean, it's cool to have all those, you expect to have the features of, like, Outlook and, you know, uh, and all that stuff. That's very cool. But, you know, let's face it, all, all devices now, all PDA-style devices, Palm devices, Pocket PC devices, they all do that, and the smartphone stuff does it, too. Really, right. you know, the speed of the network is really important, obviously, you know, because... Being able to use this thing with a laptop as a wireless modem, for example, is one of the biggest features for me. I'm sure. Yeah. So, so what do you? What kind of uh, data rates do you get with that thing? You know, I really can't say. I I don't actually use it to communicate with my laptop. Oh, okay. I, I believe that I can through the Bluetooth and use it as a wireless modem, but I don't I don't use it for that. Um, and the, one of the reasons is because uh, whenever I speak. 
you can't use the phone on the plane anyway. I'm yeah. not going to hook it up and get it going in the taxi on the way to the hotel. Yeah. And when I get to the hotel, there's always internet in the room anyway. True. Um, so I don't, I don't use it for that. But in terms of differences between the pocket PCs that are also phones and this, I, I think the biggest factor uh, actually is really just plain old form factor. I mean, this, okay. is, this is much smaller and lighter, uh, but it's a little bit different. You don't that. use your laptop in the bathtub, Russ? No, I don't actually. <laughs> What's the matter with you, man? Get with it. <laughs> I, I'll, 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 I'm going to call you if I need that help, actually. So, um, all right. So let's. The, the screen on the smartphone is not a touch screen. Yeah. And sometimes I really kind of wish that, that it was because it would be really easy to get around just like on a pocket PC. Yeah. Um, entering text is. You know, it's it's not the greatest. I mean, it does have the T9 predictive text input. Right. I've gotten to be pretty proficient at responding to emails when I need to and stuff. Yeah. Um, but the fact that if I'm already out with my wife at a lunch and we decide to see a movie, the fact that I can whip out my phone and go to the movie's website real quick, you know, I love the way that you get around on this thing. It's It's a lot like Windows. Uh, it's just the operating system is great. It's got a nice, brilliant screen, and I've got uh, a 512 megabyte mini SD card in here that I can put like eight or ten hours of, of music on or video or whatever I want, and it has Windows Media Player, so I get all those benefits as well. I'm an MPX220 carrier, and, you know, I, I have to reflect most of the same things. I like the flip phone style. But, you know, the fact that it runs Windows, you get all the pluses and the minuses. It it has all those great compatibility features. It also eats batteries, and it takes two or three minutes to turn on. And every so often, it has to, you have to take the battery out of it, out of it to restart it because it just chokes. Uh, you know, that's real life of complex software. I was going to say, I did actually get the opportunity to flash my phone up to Magneto, which is Windows Mobile 5.0. Wow. And... Um, I can say that uh, on the whole, there is um, just everything just seems a bit better. I mean, there isn't necessarily one thing that jumps out at me as being a really compelling reason, you know, to, to do the upgrade. But the phone, everything just seems better. The screen is a little bit better because of the font that they use. The anti-aliasing is a little bit better. The speed of the phone, appear, the operating system itself, appears to be a little quicker and respond a little better. And uh, it's just, it's re really great. And I downloaded the Magneto SDK for smartphones about a couple of hours ago. And I'll, I'll use Visual Studio 2005 Beta 2 to uh, create some applications for this thing. I'm looking forward to it. I got to get Magneto for my phone. That sounds too cool. Oh, yeah. So in terms of the applications that you can write, I've written Pocket PC applications. Maybe the listeners have dabbled with uh, Pocket PC programming. Um, what are, you know? Are, we're looking at an even more limited subset of the compact framework for smartphones, right? What are, what are the, some of the kinds of things you can write? Because you know, a lot of the a lot of the software that you want is already on there. I mean, you've written this one to calculate your uh, lease payments and stuff, and I could see writing code to you know to to write blogs or something like to write to your blog or something like that but what other kinds of things can you do that are really cool well i for one i can't see myself ever typing a whole blog entry on my phone i mean blogging to me is just not that important 
<laughs> Some people will. Um, but when I write a blog entry, you know, it's, it's generally 500 words or, or, or more, something okay. to that effect. But one of the applications that I did write, and this is in Visual Studio 2003 with the 1.1 version of the, of the uh, Compact Framework, was, um, you know, the, my household is busy, you know, my wife works and I work, and, and we, there was always something we needed from whatever store, and we didn't always communicate, and so, you know, one of us would think that the other one was going to go and buy the milk, and then they didn't, or they did, and then we had four gallons in the fridge. Right. <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that I wanted to do was because my wife had a pocket PC and I had a pocket PC at that point was to create an application that I called the Easy List. And what it did was it allowed us to have, since I have a web server in the house, a a website where we could go, you know, an internal website and pick the store and put some items on the list and have a user interface on our pocket PC where we could bounce back and forth between whatever store we, we happen to be at and then check items off as we got them. And yeah. then when we got back home, plop that pocket PC back in the cradle and have it synchronized back up with the SQL server on the network. And so when the next time we went to the website, you know, all of the stuff would be updated. Cool. SQL's yeah, yeah, that was pretty darn cool, I and mean, I really enjoyed it. And I made it, I designed it so that the interface was just amazingly simple to use. I mean, it's just not complicated at all. Why didn't you use Exchange for that, man? <laughs> how, how, in, in what way? Like a public folder? Dude, that was a joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why don't you load Exchange on your pocket PC and your smartphone? And... Yeah, exactly. I'll just, I'll just plop that right on there and let yeah. you know how that works out. Um but, you know, the beauty about this little app was it was great to be able to add items through the website or on the pocket PCs and just sync up. And with the with the way that technology goes, my wife's pocket PC actually has Wi-Fi uh, built in, so she doesn't even have to cradle it up. She can just do synchronize from wherever she is and not have to worry about being connected. Yeah. Now, the problem with me moving to the smartphone was that SQL Server CE 2.0 does not install on a smartphone. So I never actually wrote an implementation of that application because I would have had to go into the file system and use system.io to get things in and out. And it, it was not a project I was looking forward to taking on. Mm -hmm. But SQL Server 2005 Mobile Edition will be able to be installed on smartphones. So I'm looking forward to the release of that product. That's pretty cool. That it's just such a simple idea, you know, simple list sharing. Exactly. Very One awesome. of the things that I say in the talk that I do on this is that you have to be aware of of what makes a good fit for the form factor and what doesn't. Like you don't want to yeah. go ahead and create an architectural drafting program for the pocket PC. Yeah. It's just it's not going to be used. You're going to be disappointed. Yeah, a little bit. Does the Magneto uh, Rev have access to the phone, like being able to place calls and Yeah, but there's a managed API um, that you can use in order to gain access to things like the camera and, you know, the, the contact list and the, and the file picker. Hmm. And there's a whole bunch of, of little uh, controls like that built in to the Magneto – or I'll, I'll, I'll say built in to um, – 
the compact framework for Magneto. I, at least I think that's where they live. Um, but it's pretty remarkable that now you can really see where you can go with this kind of a thing. And I'll steal uh, a demonstration that happened at PDC 2003 to kind of depict this. Okay. Um, an insurance claims adjuster can now take their phone out to all their sites, right? They can bring up a compact framework application that you wrote in, in C Sharp or Visual Basic, and then you can now take a picture or take a video of the damage, send that directly up to the server, you know, over GPRS, and just be done with it. Hmm. In excruciating detail. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'll, I'll give you one reason to blog on your cell phone, besides the basic geekiness factor of it. Uh, I have a friend who's down in the Cayman Islands, and during Hurricane Ivan, all the power was out, all the internet service out. In fact, the only thing that worked was the one cell phone tower that was generator backed up because it was in the telephone office, and that's also where the underwater lines run. So it was the only connection to the outside world. You couldn't make a call because it was absolutely buried, but GPRS worked. So he was able to make blog entries to basically tell people he was still alive during Hurricane Ivan. Okay, then I might write a blog entry. On. There you go. Well, that is, and you've got nothing else to do. You're holding on. You know, you're on the second floor while the water runs through and the roof rips off. What else are you going to do but write <laughs> blog entries? Exactly. And you know, and I'll tell you though, I could see, I could see myself with a blog aggregator for the smartphone because a lot of times I'll be like sitting in an airport waiting, or you know, like my wife will be shopping for her shoes or clothes, and I'll just be sitting outside waiting. <laughs> And all I've got is my phone, and one of the things that I would love to do is catch up on all my buddies' blogs. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure somebody has already written an application to do that. Because yeah. goodness knows you wouldn't want to play Solitaire. <laughs> oh, I definitely do. You know how many games I've ripped off on Solitaire on this thing? I would guess it's, it's over a 1,000 already. <laughs> Rob Windsor from the chat room is saying you can MoBlog as well. What's MoBlog? I don't know, MoBlog. Rob, what's MoBlog? Is that anything like Mo Money? <laughs> Show me the MoBlog. Well, we'll find out after the 15-second delay kicks in and he hears that. Understood. Uh, so anyway, the, the whole platform is great. I just, I just love it. I think it's just really cool, and it's only going to get better and better. Um, did you guys see the pictures of what I believe was going to be called the Motorola MPX 300. Yeah, they or they they called it the they call it just MPX. Yeah, and it's well. right. And then there were some people who called it like the 300. That thing looked really cool because not only did it open in the clamshell fashion, but it also opened up on the side hinge as well. Right. Hmm. And I thought that was a really ingenious design because now you've got you know the the key the built-in keyboard as well. So it's a pretty cool little device. And I guess they decided, yeah, let's not release it. And I don't understand that. You know, it, it was going to be ghastly expensive. There was no two ways about it. This was going to be another $1,000 phone. But the last time they made a $1,000 phone, it was the bloody Razor, and it's been a huge hit. Yeah. So hmm. I, I can't imagine what made them drop it. They also said they were going to cram Wi-Fi in it as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I remember hearing from somebody that one of the reasons they crapped it, or, or they dropped it, was that they could not get it all working in in their target form factor re reliably. Now, whether that has any truth to it or not, I'm, I'm not really sure. 
Um, but uh, man, I was ready to to get out my checkbook and go to the store and on the morning of. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was watching all any list to see when I could order one of those things. I would have grabbed it. Yeah. So, Do you know about PhoneScoop.com? Yes. No. No. What's that? PhoneScoop.com is a great little site that tells you all about all the phones that are that are up and coming and that have already been ah, released. Ah, cool. Yeah, they already have. They've got forums up there. They've got a, a nice little home page that says, "Here's all the latest news." You know, like what carriers, for example, are going to start uh, carrying which phones. So it's a really great site. Turns out, moblogs are photo blogs. You know, I, th- I think oh. I know that. I, I think I heard that before. I just forgot it. And uh, textamerica.com is a place for uh, for moblogs. Rob says. Rob Windsor, our friend in Ontario. That seems weird that textamerica.com would be the photo blogging place. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> just asking for it, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, mobile blogging, moblog. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have a little blogging program that I got uh, from my pocket PC, and I like it. And I don't write tomes, but, you know, like I was on the road to Montreal – and uh, stopped over, pulled over to Dunkin' Donuts, and I don't know. I don't usually do that, like senseless blogging, like you know, uh, sort of personal rambling kind of stuff. But yeah. I just thought it was very cool to be pulled over to the side of the road, sipping a nice coffee, and and you know, posting a uh, to the blog. So that was kind of fun. You know, no hurricane or anything. Forms development should definitely check out Telerik RAD RAD Control Suite, the UI essentials for rapid ASP.NET development online at www.telerik.com, T E L E R I K.com, their new sponsor. And uh, we've taken their tools for a test drive here and we like what we see. This indispensable collection of components cover the major aspects of most web applications. From the CMS Backbone and the WYSIWYG Editor to Navigation, Content Rotation, and Charting. Telerik has just released version Q1 2005 of the RAD Control Suite, which features new major versions of their Tree View, Panel Bar, and Charting components. The company has been prominent for frequent releases, so you can expect something new every month. RAD Controls is not merely a collection of ordinary controls, but rather a value set of products, many of which are market leaders in their respective categories. They've received a number of industry awards and recognitions. Moreover, as of June 2004, a modified version of their flagship control, the HTML content editor called RAD Editor, has been made available by Microsoft as a replacement of the default HTML placeholder in Microsoft Content Management Server 2002. 
All the individual controls can also be purchased separately. If you only need navigation components, for example, you can opt in for the subset called RAD Navigation Suite. A subscription option is also available, which entitles you to new products and free updates for one year. So you should definitely check them out. Telerik RAD Control Suite Q1 2005 for ASP.NET at www.telerik.com. Kind of like the but public was, television uh, model, you know, where they uh, they have you know fun drives, and it's basically one step down from a subscription, right? It's sort of like right. a you know a little uh, sort of subscription by guilting. <laughs> <laughs> but I gladly pay for it because you know you don't get any you don't get stuff like that anywhere else. Absolutely, and I hear that satellite radio is a, is a lot like that. There's no commercials on 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 the channel. That right because be you pay for it. Thinking about getting it. Well, HBO sort of proved the concept, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. as the very first pay network, and you know yeah. the quality of the content shows. I have a replay TV, which completely automates the skipping of commercials, which is what put them out of business in the end because it upset the network so much. Yeah, is that right? Well, let's get back to the uh, smartphone thing for a minute. Um, what? What? I, I understand in ASP Net 2.0 that you can, unlike. Visual Studio 2003, where you have to develop a mobile web application to support all these many devices, and there are hundreds of them out there, if not thousands. Then, you know, now in ASP.NET 2.0, you can just build one website, and uh, and the 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 content will be translated down to the device. Is that true? Well, I've I've heard that that um, that that is true, and, and I, I can't. I can't say that what you want to do is just design a 1024 by 768, you know, web page right. and, and somehow magically, you know, ASP.NET is going to trim that down <laughs> to a, like a WAP-based yeah, right. um, interface. But um, I have heard that the controls are 
able to render themselves based on whatever device you happen to be using to browse to the site, which I think is a great, great feature to put into 2.0. Yeah. And we were talking that we were talking about Exchange earlier, right? Well, right. Uh, one of the things that comes with Exchange 2003 is the Outlook Mobile Access uh, web page. And I use that for my home email all the time. And I used to do it when I had an old LG phone, which I'm not sure whether that a Java-based uh, operating system, I guess. Um, but are you guys still there? Yeah. Okay, because I, I was hearing some pops on the line, and I was like, uh-oh. Um, but, you know, Outlook Mobile Access built right in. It's a very simple interface. You know, mm. it allows you to, to keep abreast of your emails, and, and you can find contacts and stuff like that. Many a time I've, I've been at an airport, and I forgot to bring my confirmation code, so I've just gone back into my emails and Outlook Mobile Access and gotten them, which is pretty cool. Now, you're probably thinking, well, why don't you just use the built-in Outlook and Exchange synchronization? And the reason is because I use that for my Microsoft mail account because it's more important for me to get those mails, you know, uh, as they arrive than it is for me to get the ones that arrive in my home mailbox. Um, but back to the ASP.NET 2.0 thing, yeah, I, I have heard uh, exactly what you said. Uh, the controls do know how to render themselves based on, on the device, which I think is great. You've been doing a fair amount of work with ASP.NET 2.0, have you not? I've been doing a fair amount, yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm doing is a project uh, with uh, Intelligent Systems, actually. They're doing some uh, some work for, for my department, for my group up at, up at Microsoft. And um, our site is in 2.0, and so they've, they've ported uh, Community Server to 2.0. Um, and I'm sure that they'll release, you know, a community server 2.0 on their site before too long. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been using ASP.NET 2.0 for a while. I do mm -hmm. a bunch of talks on it, and I think that, um, you know, basically my opinion of ASP.NET 2.0 is that it's it's the ASP.NET that we've all been been waiting for. Yeah. It, it is it is really spectacular. It's yeah. really amazing. Did you find it hard to wrap your mind around, you know, the the more sparse pages and, you know, the way that the, the pages look now, there's like, you know, using partial classes, there's not much in them. and Or do you find that refreshing? I find it refreshing, you know, because I, I thought it was a little childish that in 2003 and 2002 you'd bring up a web page and view the code behind and the first thing you see is don't change this. Yeah. You know, this is bad. Yeah. I thought I thought that way, you know, well, if you don't want me to change it, then don't put it there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think partial classes is an absolutely fantastic idea. I think I think it's going to be critical for uh, getting the VB6 crowd over to uh, .NET because it just removes all that complex stuff that they're never going to change anyway. Um, How many people do you think are still uh, using VB6? I mean, it, do you think it still has a, a really significant uh, uh, user base? Or? Millions. Yes, yeah. It's just too much code out there. Yeah, they're maintaining yeah, systems yeah. that they've built over the last 10 years. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, not being able to migrate as easily with the first two versions of .NET meant, right. meant they just stayed put, you know? You know, one of the things that, that has caused me to be so removed from the VB6 crowd was that I've been one of the fortunate ones where as soon as the pre-beta of of .NET, you know, 1.0 came out, I, I had the fortune to be able to, to, to use that and just that. 
You know, yeah. I, whatever company I, I happened to be at was developing brand new software or they were redoing a system in .NET. And, and I really have not looked at a lick of VB6 code in probably, you know, three or four years. Yep. Yeah. It all seems so long ago now, you know. <laughs> And Jason mentions this point, and I have to agree with him. The number of ASP, classic ASP pages out there is colossal. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, it's just there's no way out of ASP. You've got to write over again. Yeah. Yep. That said, I think that uh, there, I think that um, server technology like ASP is adopted quicker than uh, client technology. You I would know? agree with that. It's more manageable, single point. Yeah. I mean, I know that there's, you know, .NET callable wrappers that you can use so you don't have to rewrite your whole application, you know, in, in, in one big project. You can reuse your business logic and stuff. But, you yeah. know, whatever tools and technologies exist, um, I don't think that, that they've necessarily been used as, uh, as, as much as I think uh, some people might have hoped. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was recently a petition going around online um, or something like bringing back VB6 into into .NET somehow. Yeah, or we, I don't remember exactly what it was. We talked about that a little bit. There's basically some people who wanted um, uh, the VB6 language without any of the .NET complexity uh, in Visual Studio .NET, and you know what I mean. So yeah, but but I mean, to what end? I mean, you're still writing VB6 apps, right? Right. Exactly. So it's a crazy idea. I and I don't know that it's really gone anywhere either. No, it hasn't. But, you know, that said, I think that, uh, you know, we've said it again and again. I think this is this is a critical time for Microsoft to to win over the hearts and minds of the VB6 community and get them into .NET. And I'm, I'm really optimistic based on what I've seen so far with Widby and knowing, you know, what people will tolerate and what, what will turn them off. Yeah. But, you That's know, fantastic. we had the same problem back in the VB3 days with uh, uh, VB when VB4 came out. It was a very tough version because that was the 32-bit conversion, and a lot of people stuck to VB3, and it wasn't until VB5 and VB6 that right. those people moved off. So yeah. I don't see any difference here. Same sort of problem. Yeah. Well, uh, what else have you been doing with uh, .NET 2005 uh, Visual Studio? I guess you've been you, – you mentioned you're interested in testing tools. You know, it's it's really amazing. I, I knew very, very little about the testing tools until about uh, two months ago, and now I just I can't get enough of them. I mean, I cannot believe the amazing job that the team has done to create these tools. Um, I was I've always been a big fan of of stress testing my my websites and and my code. Uh, I used to work at Universal Studios and. I wrote a few online commerce sites for them. And after the first one, and this was based on Site Server 3.0, a lovely product. Um, I, I basically, I finish up the online commerce site. We, we deploy it out to production, and, and sure enough, the, the traffic starts going and, and the orders start coming in. And what we noticed is that you know the, the more traffic we got and the more orders we got, the more we needed to reset that darn server. Uh, mm. And pretty soon it got to the point where every 12 or 18 hours we had to reset the thing. Yeah. So, you know, being Universal Studios, they have what's called a, a, pr 
premier support agreement with, with Microsoft, which all that basically means is that when you call, Microsoft comes a running. Yep. <laughs> the, the Microsoft guy shows up on the lot, and, you know, it was kind of cool. I got to take him over to the server room. And Who's this? Who, who was the guy who came down? Yeah. A guy by the name of Pat Filateo. Okay. And... um and he, he was a cool guy, so we went over to the server room, and he did some stuff there, and whatever, whatever, whatever. We get back up to my office, and one of the first things he does is he, he downloads this, this program called Homer. And I had no idea what this thing was. Basically, it's a, it's a load testing tool. For so websites. VPN, or, or he, like, remote desktops or whatever it was back then, down into the production box, the production web server, grabs a couple of web logs from, from the last couple days and then imports them into this Homer tool and then uses that, uses real-life activity um, to basically simulate all those two days in the course of like 10 or 15 minutes on the box. Wow. Wow. And yeah, and it was I had no idea what he was doing. And then, but once he was getting into it, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Wow. So he brings up Perfmon, Performance Monitor. And, you know, you got to take a look at these counters, right? right. you got to know what your processor's doing. you got to know how much available memory is on the box. So sure enough, as, as the 10 minutes go by, we see the, the available memory on the box going all the yeah. way down to zero, and, and soon the box needs to be restarted. Uh-huh. So that was my introduction to, uh, to what are called memory leaks. Um, you know, I didn't have to deal with memory leaks. I was, I was a VB programmer, you know, and, and only like That's 10 right. or, or 20 people at a time were using my apps. I hadn't done any enterprise-level stuff yet. Um, so basically, um, I learned at that point that you can start off with a full day of activity and stress test your site and see how it goes. And if you notice some problems, then you can basically break that down into maybe groups of pages and see which groups of pages have the least performance. Uh, and then finally, mm. you're able to get that down to the single page that gives you the most problem. And yeah. then within that, you're able to comment out sections of code on the page to eventually narrow it down to the one or two lines of code that are giving you the problem. Very cool. So ever since we did that, I have been a huge fan of stress testing my work. And VF2005 just took this to a whole new level. Now, this is part of Team System, right? It's part of the Team Suite. You don't need the Team Foundation server to, to, to do what I'm what I'm explaining now. Although you do get additional functionality with Team Foundation, right? This is just the tools for the developer. Exactly. Tools. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, one of the things you have to know when you're stress testing a site is you have to know what what to look for. I mean, you have to know, you know, how to track down bottlenecks. Um, and there can be a t- uh, any number of things that can be a bottleneck. For example, if your website uses an access database, I'll bet you that as, <laughs> as your traffic builds up, uh, your your problem, your bottleneck is probably going to be disk utilization. You know, the disk just can't run fast enough to serve out the website. So basically, before when you'd use a tool like Homer or the tool called uh, Application Center Test, which which ships with Visual Studio 2003 Enterprise Edition, yep. you had to also bring up Perfmon, Performance Monitor. And you had to go into the counter objects and, and pick and select what counters you wanted to look at. 
Yeah. And this is all fine and dandy for someone who knows what to look for. Does anybody actually know? I, I know there's about yeah. a dozen counters that I know of. I know just because of you know, I, the stuff that we've been involved with, you know, bandwidth here and yeah. stuff like that. Memory utilization. Yeah. So basically what they did for, two, for Visual Studio 2005 was the team went around to a lot of other teams and they said, you know, when you're stress testing your web apps, what counters do you look at in Perfmon the most? And so they got that feedback, and they got all these counters, and they kind of grouped them into different buckets, like ASP.NET applications, kind of like general ASP.NET. You might want to look at these counters. Uh, an application that's really heavy on ADO.NET, you want to look at these counters. Um, you know, an application that just happens to be an IIS, you know, you, you, know, you want to look at these counters. And basically what they did was they went back to these groups and they said, okay, you told us to look at these, you know, 50 or 100 counters because they're useful. But let me ask you, what would be a good level where we might want to warn somebody they might want to take a peek at this counter because it's getting, getting a little bit questionable? And furthermore, what would be a level where we just want to say, look, red alert, you have to take a look at this thing because it's really, really bad. Mm. So... Long story short, uh, although it's already been a long story, so I guess I can't say that. To make a short story longer. <laughs> in, in, in Visual Studio 2005, you just select the fact that you've got an ASP.NET application, and then it monitors all the counters that are important and highlights the ones that have a problem for you. Wow. So you don't, you don't have to know anything about the counters before you do this. Once you see a red alert, you just drill in to, like, you know... Uh, disk utilization or whatever, and it, it'll tell you, you know, the value 98% exceeds the recommended value of whatever it be, like 40% or whatever. And it, it tells you what the number was and what it should be. So you have the ability now nice. to narrow right down and locate these performance bottlenecks without having to know a thing about performance counters. That's really great. Cool stuff. Well, they obviously built some intelligence into it. That's what it's all about. That's what makes it a good yep. tool. That's awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sweet. Now, what about unit? How do you feel about unit testing? Because you know, this is like I, I'm finding that unit testing is becoming a sort of a cult thing, right? Yeah. That there are yeah. people that that don't do it any other way, and then there are others that are like, screw that, you know, takes too much time. <laughs> yeah. And I find well, most people fall into the second category. I, I never used to be big on unit testing, and and I'll speak to what unit testing means in Visual Studio 2005. Sure, it's it's basically um, it's really a one to one relationship where you've got this method or property on a class, and a unit test would be a method in a test project that will test these properties and methods to make sure that they give you the right result and they don't error out. Right, um, and usually the idea. Usually I'm the sorry, what'd you say? The, usually the idea is to write the the test harness before you even write the code, right? Well, that's that's the approach by you know test driven development, right? Um, I don't use that approach. I know a lot of people do, mm -hmm. uh, and the approach basically is, hey, you know, you you write all the tests before you write a line of code, yeah. And then what happens is, you know, obviously everything's going to fail because you know the project doesn't exist, the methods right. don't exist, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you you have a basically a programmatic specification for your application. Right. Um, one of the good things about Visual Studio 2005 testing tools 
is that you have the ability to generate all of the test methods for every single property and method in your whole entire solution mm. automatically. Mm. And is that yeah, different from cool. is that different from the behavior of NUnit? I, I am not familiar with NUnit. I know guys like like Rocky uses NUnit a lot. I have never used it, um, but if you remind me after after the the story, I'll talk a little bit about how NUnit will fit into Visual Studio 2005. I think it does um, actually, and and I think that uh, the that unit testing tool in Visual Studio Team System, if I'm not mistaken, Richard, from what we heard from these guys. It is, is that it's the same. It is NUnit. It's the same guy who wrote NUnit who wrote a special version for Team System. And, you know, the big compelling thing about unit testing and the reason that, that some developers sign on to it is it's really the kind of testing that developers can do. It's a kind of smoke test. It doesn't yeah. replace QA, but where you don't have QA, here's at least something. It's also an opportunity to download some of those fundamental tests onto the developer before you push to QA. So, right. you know, it's not surprising to me that people are jumping onto this because it finally is a mechanism integrated with the development environment that allows a developer to give some sanity testing to their code. And also the automation part of it. I mean, if you've got 4,000 unit tests that test every method and property, um, then before you check in your code, you can right-click on on the test group that has the 4,000 tests. You can run all 4,000 and make sure that, that, you know, there's no problems. Pretty darn cool. Yeah, it's very compelling. Yeah, in addition to public properties and methods, Visual Studio will also create the reflection code necessary in order to test private properties and methods. You can make sure that they work as well. Hmm. Okay. You don't have to know a lick of reflection in order to, to get that to work. That's good. That's cool. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. You guys know about, about code coverage? Yeah. Um, I was pretty pretty amazed to see this in action in Visual Studio. I, I hadn't actually heard of it until I saw this demo. And basically, you know, the guy wrote a little class with a dumb little public method, and he, he had some conditions in there where he'd initialize I to be zero, and then he'd test to see whether it was four, and if it was, assign something to Y. So he'd have, you know, code paths that clearly were never going to get hit, right? Right. And then he, he ran the method with code coverage analysis turned on, and Visual Studio did as expected, it highlighted every line of code that did get hit in green and those that did not get hit in red. Yeah. So you can see right away all the different benefits of this. Not only uh, is it good to see what parts of your code have and have not been, been unit tested, but um, I'm sure a lot of us have worked on projects for years where we've, we've become better programmers, we've replaced code, and if we were to, you know, maybe bring in a couple of web logs from the last couple of days of our of our web application and run code coverage, we could probably identify real quickly those methods that are still hanging around from three years ago that we don't need anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, and we're afraid to remove anything because we don't know what it would break. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. So it's a neat little feature, code coverage. My next thing that I want to get into is the static analysis features, which I hear are pretty darn cool. They'll, they'll allow you to verify anything from simple syntax to, you know, certain security um, uh, methods or, or what have you. So looking forward to digging into that. Very cool. So uh, so what's next on the horizon for you? 
Next on the horizon is uh, for me to decide what's next on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, you, I you're a program manager for Microsoft, but you're not, you're not a blue badge. You don't actually... Re- badge, correct. You're an orange badge. Yep. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm in contact with a few different groups up there about various program manager positions. Um, and I'm, as I'm doing some speaking there, I'm also talking to some good friends um, about uh, maybe joining up with their ventures or, or you know, kind of splitting up some, some consulting work there. Um, you know, so it's 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 not set in stone yet. We'd really like to move to Seattle, um, but then again, there's also one or two things in LA that we really want to stay here for. So I really can't answer the horizon question because I just don't know yet. I'll make a blog entry for my smartphone when I do. <laughs> hey, well, you know, uh, we're we're most likely, we're in the planning stages of this now, Richard and I, most likely going to do a road trip across uh, America around launch time in a nice big RV where we're going to be do- doing a different show on the road every night. And we're going to be doing events with the mobility group. We're going to be uh, showing off some new devices and giving away some some free uh, units of the latest wow. and greatest stuff. And we are coming to L.A. Yeah, so, make sure you bring some of those free units with you. Well, I'm thinking maybe you could join us, you know, uh, yeah, for, that, for that event. Absolutely. And uh, give us give us your experiences with what we're talking about. So that'll be like uh, late November, early December probably? Yeah, that'll – well, no, that'll be around launch time. So around November, the week of November 7th. That's what we hope cool. anyway. We're still in the planning stages. We didn't want to make a formal announcement, but but yeah, it's uh it's gonna be a .NET Rocks VBNet, you know, mobile device kind of road trip. It'll be a lot of fun. That could be really cool. A lot of fun. I've got a couple of applications on my forums on my website that you know, in fact, the easy list application and the least calculator, easy calc, mm-hmm. um, are both up there. And I have easy calc. Uh, the least calculator for smartphone and for pocket PC, and they are in VB. So anybody who is interested in getting started with mobile development in VB uh, can go to the forums and download the project. Very cool. Nice. Yeah. All right, a little bit of a non sequitur here, but uh, what is the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? Uh, probably this Magneto Flash for my phone, Windows Mobile 2005. Something else that we haven't talked about yet. You know... I am, I unfortunately, uh, to the detriment of, of interest uh, to your listening public, I'm one of those guys <laughs> who never downloads anything uh, <laughs> and puts it on his computer. <laughs> do not, I do not want viruses. I do not want my computer acting up. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who reformats and reinstalls my whole system every six to nine months um, because eventually I'll start fiddling with something or, you know, when, like, Lately, Outlook, for some reason, I'll bring it up, and then it takes a good 12 hours for it <laughs> to finally be responsive like it should be on a 2.5 gigahertz system with a gigabyte of RAM. Hmm. You know? I'm a big believer in this, Russ. You know, my, my thinking here is that software is fatty food, and the more you put on your machine, the higher the cholesterol level. And then one day, <laughs> it's angioplasty time. Yeah. You just gotta gut it and start over. You get a new, yep. you get a transfusion. Now, of course, along the way, I usually get a new motherboard and a bigger video card and more RAM, but that's just me. 
<laughs> yeah. One thing that I, I, I didn't download recently, but a while ago that I will recommend is this. I am one of these guys who absolutely cannot stand spam. I mean, I get physically angry whenever I receive it. Um, and I receive probably two to 3,000 per day, uh, which various levels of, of you know, protection catch. But um, spam bays, have you heard of that? Spam days? Spam bays, B-A-Y-E-S. B as in baby? As in Bayesian. Um, basically, this is a tool that Scott Mitchell uh, blogged about, um, and I've used it for a while, and it's pretty remarkable because the intelligent message, excuse me, intelligent message filter in exchange is good, and that's what blocks probably 90% of the spam. The junk email filter in Outlook is also good, uh, but that only gets about another, you know, 5%. And this spam-based tool, I'm happy to say, only about maybe three emails per week to two weeks actually make it to my inbox. So, I mean, I still have to go to the junk mail folder, which has, you know, 100 items every day or whatever, and, and clean that out and delete it. Um, but I just, when it, when they show up in my inbox, I just can't take that. I just, I hate that. <laughs> yeah, it is a huge problem. Yeah, it's, I mean, and you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. How much bandwidth do you think is taken up on, on all the available bandwidth all over the world for spam? Way Massive. too much. Way too it's, much. Yeah. Well, they say 50% of the NNTP traffic is the spam in NNTP. They're spamming, spamming your blogs now, too, man. They won't leave you alone. Yeah. I know. I heard you guys talking about this with Rob Howard a couple weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, every time I wake up and I have, you know, nine or 15 emails in my hotmail, I know exactly what it is. You know, it's my blog getting spammed. We have a, a Shrinkster URL for spam bays, shrinkster.com slash 600-6-letter-o-zero. It's spam, B-A-Y-E-S. Spam bays. Cool. And it's in SourceForge. Well, we'll definitely check yeah, that out. Exactly. There it is. I yeah. like it a lot. It's, it plugs in to Outlook, gives you a couple buttons that you can, you know, you can use to recover stuff from spam or send stuff to uh, the junk mail folder. It's it's a pretty good application. I, I really like it a lot. What uh, what uh, you know? You, I know you're up on the phones and the devices and stuff. Do you think this mo- this new Motorola thing is the is what you're going to be going for or do you not like the pocket PC phones? You, you... Um, I don't like the pocket PC phones because uh, I like something that can fit in my pocket without being annoying. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not one of those people who wears a belt clip. I mean, I, I'm just not, I, I never will be, you know, yeah. I just like to stick a nice small phone in my pocket and just have it in my pocket. Yeah. Um, and those pocket PC phones, especially when you get that antenna going, they're just, they're just too big. Yeah. You know, now, okay. What's up with antennas? I know. There's no excuse for it. Yeah, you My MPX220 has no antenna. Your your candy bar has no antenna. You don't Come need on. Right. Yeah, but we're also on GSM. On CDMA, I think you have antennas, right? Isn't that how it works? Yeah, I think so. But those little pull-up plastic things are just like toys, right? They don't mean anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it's more of a worser, worser option. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, have you noticed... On your MPX220, if your phone happens to be near your computer speakers, all of a sudden you'll hear like, 
Yes. And what is up with that? That's the that's the 850 megahertz frequency of quad band GSM. That's uh, oh, man, that's nuclear on. radiation, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what it is. Just in case you were wondering, that's why that frequency is generally not added to phones, right? Because when you put that quad band on there, it has an effect on things. It's also probably one of the reasons for the MPX not working that well is it is a low enough frequency that it interferes with a lot of things. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. You know, Ken Guest was was actually the one who told me that uh, the Wi-Fi networks apparently work on 2.4 gigahertz, just like a lot of the cordless phones out there. Yes. Yeah. I had no idea. So one of the first things I did was run out and I bought a Panasonic set that's 5.8 gigahertz. And not only does the phone sound a whole lot better, but the wireless network is a lot more reliable as well. Yeah, I have right one up of, until you turn your microwave I was on, gonna which say also that. runs at 2.4 gigahertz. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, and now it interferes with your microwave. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Russ, do you have any last-minute words of advice or wisdom to give to the uh, the throngs of listeners out there? I highly, highly, highly recommend Visual Studio 2005 and ASP.NET 2.0 uh, to, to anybody who has uh, even a remote chance of getting their hands on it. MSDN subscribers can, can get certain versions of it. MVPs uh, get certain versions of it. I'm sure RDs get even more versions of it. But um, it, it is absolutely more than worth uh, your time to investigate that and, and, and I think to, to upgrade to it uh, for features, for performance, for ease of use, for the testing, it's just it's a great product, and it's only in beta 2, so it only gets better. I couldn't agree more, and we might want to add that don't ever install beta software on a machine you develop on unless it's in a virtual PC session, right? Well, there, yeah, I mean, you, you could say that. It's a good rule of thumb. I have installed beta 2 on my normal box, uh, and I have not yet had any problems, but uh, that doesn't mean that I won't. Lots of people have, and I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do use virtual PC a lot as well, um, and uh, in fact, I have a Longhorn virtual PC that I'm I need to get back to, to fooling around in. But oh, yeah, boy. absolutely, I, I don't recommend installing it on on uh, on a production box or a box that you rely on. All right. Well, listen, Russ. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing the show. This was great. I always love geeking out and talking toys. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you in Los Angeles uh, around November time. We hope. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. And uh, from all of us here at .NET Rocks, I'd like to say thanks for listening. And I'd like to thank on behalf of myself and Jeff Masielik, who's not here yet, but he will be next week. He's the editor. And uh, Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Me, Carl Franklin, Russ Nemhauser. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. And we'll see you next week. By the FCC, yes, I'm a-